was really good. And I, I've been preaching a lot on all sorts of, you know, things along the same theme of the church. And I know you guys hear a lot about the centrality of the church and the ecclesia, but it's hard to escape that considering it's what the entire New Testament's about, right, is, is this mystery revealed, the church. Uh, and I was, as I was worshiping there, I just kept hearing this thought, like, to know Jesus is to want to make him known, right? Like, just this thought, and it's a challenging thought. To know him is to want to make him known, right? It's not, it's not a duty. It's not a requirement. It's not uh, a chore. It is the natural result of truly knowing him. You want to make him known and what that looks like and how to go about that. How do I do this? Well, how do you make him known? It's you're driven by the idea that I was this way and I was lost and I was a mess and I encountered this love that I didn't deserve. This man, this God man intervened and he rescued me and it was such a transformative thing that how can I not tell others when I see them in this faith, right? And Jesus tells his disciples, as you've been loved, love others, right? He says, this is my one command to you, right? If you want to know how to be a Christian, it's summed up in this one command. As you have been loved, love others. And this is, you know, unfortunately in the English language, love means nothing, right? It just means whatever you want it to mean, right? Just listen to the news today. Love is love. Love and let love. You're like, well, what do you mean by that word? Right? But in the Greek, they break the word down into four very specific meanings that really shed some light here. And, you know, there's, there's the love for this affection. Right? It's a shallow but wide love. You can love your wife and you can love your favorite pencil with affection. Right? It's the Greek word sorge. And it just means, like, we say it all the time. Man, I love this toaster. What you're saying is, I sorge this toaster. I have affection. This thing makes good toast. Right? I'd be sad if I lost this toaster. But you can say the same thing about your wife and your children. That's sorge. That's not the word used here. Then there's phileo, which is family-level love. Right? It's brotherly love. We have a city in America named Philadelphia, and we know it as the city of brotherly love because its root word is phileo, Philadelphia. Brotherly love. It's the way you love your family. It's the way the church loves each other as family. That's not the word used here. Then there's... Eros. Eros is where we get our English word erotic from. Eros is specifically sexual love. That's what it means. It's, it's that. It's union. It's jealous love. It's where jealousy is not only allowed, it's right and good and in the right place. Right? Uh, it's a protected love. It's a specific love. This is the word that the world confuses so often with love. Right? Oh, man, I really, really want the love of a man. Oh, you, well, then you must be gay. He's like, no, it's not talking about arrows here. You're, you're looking for sorge. You're looking for phileo, these other godly loves here. <coughs> but it all gets grouped into, in our culture, into arrows. But that's not the word used here. Then there's this fourth word, agape. And agape is a supernatural love. Right? It, it means sacrificial love, selfless love. It's, it's how you can love your enemy. You can't love your enemy with sorge, and you can't love your enemy with phileo, and you can't love your enemy with eros. The only way you can love your enemy is with agape, right? And that's the word used here. And Jesus is saying, as you have been agape, meaning supernaturally and selflessly loved, love others. 
and that changes the whole game. The whole game is just flipped on its head there. Now it's not, I was hugged by my parents a lot, so I'm going to go hug people a lot. You see? It's not like people did good things for me, so I'm going to do good things for them. No, it's how have you been loved by Jesus? And the problem is we can't love others that way because we don't even know how we've been loved. We've not actually connected in a way where we've received that love. So many of us in this day and age, this culture, have a really hard time receiving that love because we think it needs to be earned. It needs to be, there needs to be a reason why he loves me, and I can't find that reason, so I don't believe it. And so therefore, we're handicapped in our ability to actually love others the way God needs them to be loved. And so we come to the, to the cross and we just embrace the fact that we did not earn it and we don't understand it, but we know it's true because he says so and he's not a man that would lie. He has no reason to lie to us. He has just chosen to love us because he is good. And now we can then take that and say, I can now love others and it's not dependent on what they give back to me, how they make me feel. They can hate me. They can revile me. They can persecute me. They can speak against me. They can try to kill me. They can be my enemy in every sense of the word. And I am still fully equipped to love them. That's life-changing, right? And so to know him, meaning to know how you've been loved by him, to know your love, your his, your to know him is to want to make him known. It's no longer a duty. And this wanting to make him known is at the center and the heartbeat of the church. It's the mission. And I'm going to use the word mission a lot, and I'm going to be up here again in two weeks and doing like a follow-up here, a second part or whatever, unless God does something different. But I'm saying I'm going to use the word mission a lot, and I want you to understand what I mean by that, okay? In Matthew 28, we're given a great commission, right? But it is a great co-mission. You understand? It's a mission that's meant to be done together in community, in family. And this mission is why you are here. You can't understate this fact. Do you understand? If you were here to, quote unquote, get saved, you'd be gone already. Hopefully. Right? If you're not, then you've been left behind. <laughs> and you don't like that. Okay? But my point is, if the mission was, the purpose was to get saved, then you'd be gone already. Believe me, heaven is a whole lot more enjoyable than here. This place is a battlefield. Right? It is a fallen world just engrossed with missions and battles. But instead, he didn't save you and take you. He saved you and left you here on purpose. He not only saved you and left you here, he saved you and he sent you out to here. And even more so, he didn't just save you and send you out here. He saved you and he sent you out as lambs to the slaughter. It's a really encouraging mission, mis message so far, right? That's what I'm saying. But listen, it's going to be at the end. I promise. <coughs> but you can't get to, you don't get the reward without doing the work, right? And the work here is recognizing that you have been saved unto something bigger. You've been saved unto something bigger than just your personal salvation. 
And if you don't understand this, you'll never understand what the church is. You won't, you won't be able to comprehend it. You'll just continue living, thinking life is about you and your relationship with God, and the church is just something you do as a Christian. And when you do that, you have zero hope of understanding anything Paul writes, anything Peter writes, anything John writes, anything in the New Testament you are completely at odds with. You will think the scripture contradicts itself. You'll come up with all these multiple scripturalist gospel interpretations, uh, and you just end up recategorizing living selfishly as being Christian. And the gospel doesn't leave room for that. The gospel is, is a very specific way of living. Matter of fact, in all of Acts, for the first hundred years of the church, Christianity was known as the way. There was a way of living, and they lived in such a way that they became known by all the people around as the people of the way. And then those people who were called, who were those who lived according to the way were first called Christians in the place where they were referred to as the way. In other words, the way they lived was so closely associated with Jesus that they were called Christ followers. The people of the way were then synonymously called Christ followers. Because there is a specific way we are to live. It's why the, the famous question of how then are we now to live with this new salvation? Well, the scripture does not leave us in the dark for that. It gives us specific ways. This whole household text that Paul gives us where he tells us this is what it means to live this way. Here's how you test yourself to see if you are even in the way. Right? And he says this, here's the test, you have Christ in you. He actually says, it, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And when I come, we will see. He says, or don't you know for yourselves? Can't you tell that Christ is in you? And then he leaves right afterward, he says, unless you failed the test. Like he's, it's a church that's challenging his authority, and he challenges them back. He said, you're challenging my authority. Do you even have Christ in you? He's like, examine yourself, test yourself, see if you're even in this faith. But the point is, there is a faith. And it's specific, and you don't get to define it. And you don't get to choose the way you interpret it, right? Peter says this, that prophecy is not up to personal interpretation. He's talking about the scripture. That when he says prophecy, they refer to the scripture as the prophetic word, the prophecy, right? And he says it's not open to personal interpretation. There is one intent by the author. And it's up to us to allow the Holy Spirit to show it to us, but in community. That's the church. There's a reason why throughout history, the Catholic Church, which definitely went corrupt, right? Man's power, selfishness, all got involved. But they understood that there was only one church. Only one church. You don't get to pick which church you're in. There's only one. It's the Holy Catholic Church. The word just means universal. It's in the Apostles' Creed. Like the apostles of Christ, the followers of Christ, and in a creed, they use the word Catholic. It, it gets distorted and, and perverted, as we know, but the word meant universal, one church. To be outside of the church was to be outside of salvation. That was the early church's understanding. There wasn't 50,000 denominations and interpretations that you could be a part of. It was never the intent. And so the Catholic church understood this, and as it grew, they tried to find better ways to manage it, and instead of managing it in the way that Paul had set the church up, 
they started managing it according to Gentile structures, and you ended up with eventually a pope, a single head of earthly authority uh, that was used to unit. It was a good intent. It just started using man's philosophy instead of sticking to the scripture, right? And so their intent was to keep the church united under one set of teaching, one one belief set, one life function, and it had guidelines, and it just went off. But Paul did the same thing, guys. <coughs> he gave us specific sets. So it brings us to this place. To know Christ is to want to make him known. It, it, it is the drive. And if that's not in you, then you have to do some work with God because Paul would then say to you, you need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. The test of whether you were in the faith was if Christ was in you. And the fruit of Christ being in you was to want to make him known. When you read in Galatians 5, it gives you all these things that are the fruit of the Spirit. And we tend to think they're just good guidelines for how to be a good person. But they're actually the very testament to whether you have Christ in you, whether you have the Spirit of God in you. If you do, these fruits will, will demonstrate that. And then right before that, he gives the works of the flesh. He says, if you don't have Christ in you, these fruits will be what's manifested. Wrath, envy, selfishness, like all these things that, that we read over and we're like, oh, these people are bad. But if we did a self-assessment, we'd be like, how is this fruit coming out of me? And that's scary. And the message isn't meant to be scary. <laughs> really, it's really not, I promise you. Right? It's this idea that the church has been given a mission and the mission is to make him known, but not from a place of duty. So in Matthew, we get this great commission we've been given, but I want you to understand it as the great co-mission. And it was this, as you are going, make disciples. Now, there's a lot of teachings out there that have... Um, and different translations that translate it and just says, go, make disciples. And then we've understood that over the years as go. Like you need to go somewhere. You need to be sent somewhere. You need to go to Africa or Asia or the 1040 window or somewhere. You need to go if you want to obey Christ. And so what happens is the people who felt like I really want to obey Christ, they felt like they needed to become what we understand as missionaries. Right? And it created this divide between this divide that's existed in the church forever. Think of like priests and lay people, clergy and lay people, right? Monks and, and the people who work jobs, right? This whole division of the church, and there was the holy people and then the regular people. And what happened is in our modern day, it became missionaries and those who fund missionaries. And it, it creates this psychological dissonance that is not in the gospel anywhere. It's nowhere in the scripture. It's like if you know a Christian, ideally, then you also know a missionary. Because to be a missionary just means you're on mission. And that's the mentality I want you to see here. Every Christian was given the great co-mission. This mission was to make disciples. When you properly interpret that passage in Matthew 28, it's a passive form of go. Right? So in the Greek, that makes a big difference. Right? The imperative means it's a command. And then if it was an imperative form, you'd read it as go. But it's not. It's the passive form. So what you would more understand it as is as you go, as you are going, make disciples. 
Meaning, as you live the life you feel wholeheartedly God has called you to live, make disciples. Then he tells you, how do you make these disciples? Baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to obey everything I've taught you. And that can, I'm just telling you, if you, if you were in the church the way I grew up in the church, this is just read as missionaries are going to go and make disciples, and they're going to baptize them, which is really cool, right? It's a symbolic act that you're now with Jesus. And then we're going to teach them all the scriptures. And it's like absolutely strips the commission of what it, what it is. The commission is literally the establishing of the ecclesia, the church. He says, as you go, make disciples. Then baptize them into the family of God that you have been brought into. That's what it means by baptize them into the name of. When you adopt a person, they take on your name. They now have all the rights and influence and power of your name. Do you understand? Like if Bill Gates, right, everyone knows his name. His name carries weight. If someone says Bill Gates sent me in the business world, I'm saying, everyone received that person, right? And if Bill Gates were to adopt children and give them his name, then those people would now carry the name of Bill Gates with all the weight that comes with it, with all the representa representation that comes with it. They would be known as Bill Gates' people, his family, his children. This is what Jesus is communicating. This is how the first disciples would have understood this, that they're being baptized into the very name of Christ. They become name bearers of Christ. And this is huge in light of the third commandment in the Ten Commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And of course, growing up, we understand that as don't say Jesus Christ in the wrong context and don't say God damn it, right? These are the highest violations of the Christian experience. I grew up, my, my mom, right, that my parents were first-generation Christians, meaning their parents were lost. They were lost until they got saved. They got saved two years after I was born. And they did their best to live the, the new Christian life as they discovered it, well raising me and my brother and my sister. <coughs> there was one time my brother, and we got spanking, and um, a normal spanking for us was like two or three whacks, right? Enough to make you start crying, and then that was it. And my parents, half the time they did it in love, half the time they did it in anger. Right? Uh, highly don't recommend that. <coughs> but my brother outside one time said, Jesus Christ. And he was like seven, seven years old. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I ran in and I told my mom, Chris just said the thing, the JC. She was like, what? Get in here, Chris. Brings him in the bedroom, and I just hear 10 whacks. Like, it was the highest of blasphemy. She was saving him from blasphemy, from hell forever, because he said, Jesus Christ, driving out the blasphemy with him every whack. How dare you use the Lord's name in vain? And we were just petrified. We would never say it, ever. It was like we would, if you were going to write it out, you'd leave out the, the consonants, right? you just like, just you wouldn't even write it. 
then, as I started reading the scriptures for myself more and starting learning some things, I was like, this is incongruent with, like, the weight of all the other commandments. It's like, you shall have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. Do not misrepresent me. Don't you dare swear with these bad words. Right? Remember the Sabbath and keep this holy as a representation to the nations. Right? Don't kill. Don't steal from someone else. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery or covetousness. Don't say bad words. <coughs> it's so discongruent until you look at the New Testament and you understand what he's saying. He's saying, don't you dare say you represent me and then live in vain. Don't you dare take on my name and carry my name and represent me and then live in vanity of that. Meaning like misrepresent me. Don't say you're my follower and live differently. And this is the weight of the commands. And you see this throughout all the prophets and you see it throughout the whole New Testament. Paul literally tells a church to kick a person out of the church because he's not living according to the teachings of Christ and the apostles, and therefore he would misrepresent Christ to the world by doing so. Paul cared more about the representation of the witness of Christ in the church than he did that one person. That's not to say he didn't care about that person. When you read his next letter, he says, hey, if he's repentant, bring him back in as a brother. The point was not to crucify the man, but to let him know He's turned over to Satan. You chose to live this way. That's where you are. But if he repents, bring him back. But needless to say, Paul's bigger concern was on the witness of the church, the purity of the witness. Why? Because the third commandment stresses it. Because the great commission stresses it. Because the weight of the church and its mission is dependent on it. So it brings us back to this great commission. You're baptizing these people into the name. They become name bearers. They are now backed by the, the, the name and the family of Christ. It's a huge moment. This is, to meant, this is meant to be like the equivalent of an adoption ceremony, the baptism of a person. It's to be celebrated as a community. Hey, another person has committed their life to the church of Christ, right? And the symbolic nature of it is that you're saying, I choose to publicly identify with Christ in both his death and the resurrection of life that comes with it. But it was a public declaration that I am now choosing to be part of the church. And this was so extreme and understood, and it's still understood today in so many cultures. In the Muslim culture, if a person gets saved, right, the family won't disown them. They'll try to persuade them back to Islam. They don't feel like they're gone if they say, I believe in Christ. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's God. And like, no, 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 he's not. Let's go back to the Quran. We believe in Jesus too, but he was just a prophet, right? And they'll try to persuade him. The moment that they disown their children is baptism. The moment their child chooses, or anyone in their family, chooses to publicly commit to the name and witness of Christ is when they know their child is gone now. Their child has, has switched their allegiance from their family to a new family. And they understand that weight. And so that is the moment of disowning. And that is also the moment of committing to become part of the family of Christ. You can be convinced Jesus is the Messiah. Listen to Jesus' parables about the seed, the sower and the seed. 
There's many who receive the word and spring up in life, but then they get choked out or they get dissuaded again or the cares of the world cause them to stop following. But the ones that truly, truly encounter the gospel and are transformed by it are the ones who then say, I am making a public declaration. I want this. My allegiance, my life is now this. Well, this has a third part. Teach them to obey all the things I've taught you. Not teach them all the things I taught you. Nothing about the mental ascent. Teach them to obey all the things I've taught you. Anyone who has ever had little children, and you know it's not good for them to be eating cookies before dinner. So you can teach them it's not good to eat cookies before dinner. But you also know if you leave them alone long enough, they're going to eat cookies before dinner. But how? You already taught them that it's not good to eat cookies before dinner. It's because you haven't taught them to obey the fact that they shouldn't eat cookies before dinner. And that's a whole other world. And it's the same with discipleship, as many of us know from our own personal experience, right? Think about how many things you know, but you don't obey. Think about how you've tried to teach people things, and they get it, but they don't live it out. Teaching someone to obey the teachings of Christ is a supernatural work, and it takes family, connection, relationship, discipleship, teaching, training, Holy Spirit encounters. There's a Greek word for it that's called epinosis, meaning this. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. It just means to obtain into information, knowledge. But epinosis means experiential knowledge. It's the knowledge gained through experience, right? So Paul's mission is for the church to know Christ. But the word there when he says it is epinosis. In other words, he's saying, I want to know Christ. And then he explains why he wants to epinosis Christ. He says, I want to epinosis Christ. And for that to happen, I need to be able to know the power of his resurrection. And I need to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. And I need to be baptized into his death so that in any way I can take part in that life. He's saying to, to know Christ, I need to relate to him. I need to experientially come to know him. You cannot do that apart from the church. You just can't. That's God's way. This is what I'm saying. You can't rewrite the gospel. You can't rewrite the, the, the message. You can't rewrite the Great Commission. Jesus says very clearly, this is what I'm commissioning you guys to do. Before that, in Matthew 16, verse 18, I believe, he says this. Upon this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Right? <coughs> so there's a lot to unpack there, right? We could spend weeks on it. The gates of hell was a real place. It wasn't just kind of rhetoric. It wasn't like cool poetry. And not even the mighty gates of hell will prevail against this. No. If you read it, he took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, which was the furthest north part of Israel. It's where the pagans lived. The Jewish people were always taught, don't go there. They never let their children go there because it's where the temple to Pan was. And Pan was this, this pagan goat god. And they... They sacrificed pigs, which was super unclean. They ate pigs, super unclean. They worshiped false gods. Well, there's this giant rock cave in the side of a mountain, this big hole, and they built a temple right up against it. And Jesus takes his young disciples. His disciples were 
anywhere from 14 to like early 20s, right? They were working with their father, which means they didn't have a trade of their own yet. So it tells us in the culture how old they were. None of them were married. None of them had kids except Peter. He was married, and there's no mention of, of children. So they're all following Jesus. This 30, 31, 32-year-old young rabbi, which is pretty young for them, with a bunch of teenagers, maybe early 20s, following up to the place they were told never to go. Don't go there. And Jesus brings them there, and he brings them right to the place that was known as the gate of hell. And there, in Caesarea Philippi, he turns to them and he says, who do men say that I am? Right? It's like he went to this stronghold and he said, I am now going to challenge this place in front of my disciples. And they are going to experientially know me in this moment in a way they haven't known me since. Who do men say that I am? You know, some say you're a great prophet. Some say you're the prophet, the teacher. And then we prophesied. And he says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, and in, in the history of there, they, they just earlier, maybe six months before this, they make this statement. Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey? Right? They're still questioning. They're still working out. Like, we believe you're the Messiah. We don't know what that looks like, though. You know, are you the prophet? Are you the teacher, the Messiah even? Or are you God? Right? They're working this out. And here, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. And Jesus turns to him and says, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, right? And there's a cool play on words in the Greek about little rock and big rock. But he says, <coughs> upon this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia. What was the rock? The rock was the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he says, now that you have that revelation, I can establish what I came here to establish, Upon this rock of revelation that I am the cornerstone, I am going to build my ecclesia. And against this ecclesia, not even this wicked place is going to stand against it. And what's cool about that is this was not a place that was attacked. It wasn't an offensive thing. It's a defensive thing. So it tells us that in Jesus' intent, the ecclesia was going to be an offensive entity it was going to be on mission and not even the gates of hell would be able to prevail against it what's all packed up in that so much the ecclesia is the word that gets translated church it's my favorite word to say because it sounds so crisp and like like uh, uh like german ecclesia maybe it's just me ecclesia <laughs> but the weight of the word is what gives it so much impact to know that ecclesia just meant gathering, right, or set apart ones. So that's what the word means. The Romans used it. The Romans used that term all the time. And the Romans were a very offensive uh, empire. They conquered, and they were never satisfied. They kept conquering. But every time they conquered a new place, they would set up a Roman ecclesia. And in that ecclesia, so let's just say they took over Germania. Right? It was very far from Italy where Rome is. So the emperor's throne is in, in Rome. He can't be in Germania as well. So what he does is he sets up an ecclesia, and he puts his governor there, and uh, a whole outpost of military people to enforce. 
And from that place, they decree and they train all the conquered people in the ways of the Roman peace, is what it was called, the Roman law. And so they would enforce with the military might what the governor was decreeing, and it was a conversion experience of the natives in the land that had been conquered. And so they'd set up an ecclesia. So the whole world was filled with all these ecclesias. There was an ecclesia in Israel. It's where Pilate was. Jesus was brought to the Roman ecclesia where Pilate was governing from and where he was crucified. The decree for him to be crucified came from the Roman ecclesia. And before that, Jesus tells his disciples who have been oppressed by this ecclesia for their whole life, he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia. You see, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get that. You gotta get the vision and intent of Jesus Himself for you to understand what we're doing here. He was speaking a very clear thing to his followers, and he said, "Now that you have the revelation from the Father, He's revealed it to you. You know it. It's a rock now. I am gonna build my ecclesia." And not even the gates of hell will prevail. Meaning, I'm going to build my seat of power that you guys are going to rule from. And you're going to conquer even the gate of hell here. Even the place of darkness that you've been told don't go. It's where the worst of the worst are. This ecclesia is going to conquer and assimilate that. His very next words to him are this. I am giving you the authority now. So it goes right along with this picture of ecclesia. That what you see loosed in heaven loose on earth and what you see bound in heaven bind on earth he was literally saying i'm going to plant my church and the job of the church is to execute the authority and governing of heaven on earth and in order to do that wherever i plant a new ecclesia the first thing is to conquer and convert or make disciples where he has planted the ecclesia that you are to be firmly rooted and committed to is the place that you are now to be going. And as you are going, you're making disciples and you're bringing them back to this ecclesia and you're baptizing them into the family of God and saying you are now part of a supernatural family. You bear the very name of Yahweh. Wherever you go, the authority of God is now with you to command sickness to leave, to command demons to come out, to command the dead to be raised, right? To make disciples. I love John Wesley because he gives this quote. He says, the church does not change the world. Now think about his exhortation. John Wesley's exhortation was for the church to change the world. So he was on point. He, he understood the mission. He said, the church does not change the world by making converts, but by making disciples. See how we differentiated the two, right? It's converts are what we have prevalent in the church today, right? They're just people who have converted to a religion, right? Or they, they, encountered, they encountered Jesus, but now they're denying the power within of it to transform their lives and to transform them from one kingdom that they've lived their whole lives in. It's all they know to be transformed from there into the kingdom of light where there's a whole new way of living, of thinking, of understanding, of doing a whole new set of priorities, a whole new loyalty. Your loyalty shifts from yourself or your natural family or whatever you felt 
most loyal to, it shifts to Christ and his church. And for those of us who grew up in religious backgrounds, the word church can just immediately trigger all these value terms, right? You think church, oh, the building. I'm loyal to the building? No. Oh, church is just uh, all, the, all the programs and things they got going on there. Uh, nope. No. If you don't feel like you have a firm grasp on what the church is, some good sound advice. Open up your Bible and start reading it. And then say, hmm, do I see the modern-day church in what I read as my understanding? No. But I am seeing that thing Wesley's been talking about a whole bunch. And everywhere in first principles is went through it. Okay, now I'm seeing that in Scripture. This is, what a coincidence. This is crazy. Here's the real rub, guys. The mission requires complete surrender. The cross requires complete surrender. You can't hold on to your, to your old loyalties even a little bit. You can't hold on to your old ways of thinking even a little bit. If you are not willing to pledge your head to heaven in the moment that you're in right now, then you are in conflict between two kingdoms. That's not, it can't happen. It's, it won't function. That's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You have to reject one completely. You can't do both. So you have all these plans, you have all these ideas. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You need to follow Paul's example and be willing to count all of that as garbage, as trash, as utterly worthless because you're comparing it with the value of epinosising him and finding that, you know, I'm willing to bet that if you haven't lined up with this type of truth from Scripture and understanding what the church is and what the mission is, and you've just been living that individual life, that you probably don't find within yourself this drive to make him known. You probably operate a little bit more of like, this is my duty. This is what I need to be doing. I'm a Christian, and I need to, I need to be able to share my faith with my coworkers. Right? And so it's this awkward thing for you. You're like, when's the moment? You're working up all these guts to be like, do you know Jesus? No? Okay, well, I just, he loves you, and that's all I wanted to say. And you're like, I did it. All right, check him off the list. I shared my faith with him. All right, who next? I can't leave this place until I all know. When, when if you actually, if you are actually part of the family of God, and you've actually been transported out of a kingdom of darkness, overwhelmed with the gratitude of that thing into this kingdom of light, then you're thinking like there's this clash between the reality you live in and the reality of your, your lost coworkers, where you sense it, you know it, you walk into the room and you're like, the things they talk about is being valuable, the things they talk about is what brings them life, and you're like, that is sad. There is a disconnect there. They are... They are without hope. Their greatest joy is in catching a fish. Their greatest joy is in playing in their, their garage band with their friends. And like they're living for that. They're stuck in that. And you start to feel the words of God coming up. And you're like, you start to resonate with what you've read where Paul is like saying, we, or you start thinking, I am here as an ambassador of Christ as though he himself were pleading through me 
can't reconcile with God. You're hopeless. How can I not share the hope I have in me? And you feel it, and then the compassion of Christ and the mission of Christ and the power of Christ starts to stir, and you're like, hey, listen. I remember there was a time I used to think fishing was like it, right? You're just looking for natural ways to share the hope you have in hopes that they'll see it and grab hold of that hope. And then you can bring them into the family of God where you know they will come alive. That's the mission. This is the church. It's supposed to be subversive to the culture you're in. It's supposed to be invasive. It's supposed to create riot or revival. There's no middle ground. Your witness, if it isn't stirring something in them, guess what? There's no witness. Light will cause people to be able to see or to react. One of the two ways. It either blinds them or it opens their eyes. But if your light isn't shining, then they just go about like, hey, yeah, you just like me. It's cool. Oh, you do the church thing? That's cool. But what in your life is provoking people to ask questions? Well, I'll tell you, it's this simple. If you were part of the mission of Christ on the earth, the church, you would provoke it. I guarantee it. Because you'd live so differently. You'd, you'd find so much value in different ways, and you'd be strategizing on how to show these people the hope you have. So the point is we've been given this great commission that Jesus then elaborates is the ecclesia. It is the church of God. And you guys, listen, I can talk about this stuff for months so you'll have to cut me off right uh that's just stephanie literally walks into the sanctuary when i'm preaching to remind me she's like yeah i'll just wait when you guys start getting up i'll stop no i'm just kidding yeah as you start leaving i'll know it's over no I, i'm wrapping up now because i get to come up again so the idea is this that the mission is what brings us life. It's the ecclesia. The Bible says this, that the church of God is meant to be the fullness of Christ on the earth. That means it's more than just a, an organization. It's more than just a gathering. It is a literal committed family that's united under the cause and the headship of Christ to partner with him for the very reason he came. That's the church. It says that the church is meant to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. We don't see that very often today. We just don't, but it's meant to be that on the earth because it's Christ on the earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, that the church is not Christ um, in community. It's Christ as community. Think about the difference between that for a second. It's not just Christ taking part in a community of people. It's Christ manifested by that community, meaning each person is carrying Christ in them, and they come together, and it's a manifestation of Christ on the earth. Do you think that if it, if it, it could be anything less, if Christ said, it's better for me to leave, and you just look at him and you're like, on what planet is it better for God in the flesh to leave? This is why. Because he said, I am God in one flesh, and when I leave, you will become God in many flesh. Now, don't take that out of context. I'm not saying you're God, but I'm saying you become the body of Christ. You become the manifestation of Christ on the earth, the very witness. Outside of you, there is no way for the lost to see Christ. 
And therefore, the witness of the church has to be correct. It has to be accurate. Otherwise, the church leads people to a false Christ, which is a false hope, which is an eternal damnation. We can't afford that. Paul knew he couldn't afford that, which is why he weeded out those who weren't truly of Christ. And he knew that they weren't truly of Christ by whether they had Christ in them or not. And he knew whether they had Christ in them or not by whether they bear the fruit of Christ being in them. Do you see how that is just so simple? And yet we come to church and we're afraid to confront each other in our sins. And we know we're in sin. We know there's people among us that are in sin, struggling with sin, struggling with selfishness, struggling with things. And we're like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? How about you just say, hey, what is going on? Don't allow yourself to be brought back into captivity. The very thing you've been set free from. Let's pray. Let's, let's trust God. He's the defeater of these things. Like that's the church. And it's on a mission. And it's a commission. And it's on us to dig into the word to make sure we understand that mission and our part in it. Right? There's so many people that hear this and they think, oh, does this mean we have two elders in our community um, like we have, we have a whole team of elders, the elders in training, whatever. They're like life group leaders. And a couple of them who are like, I don't know if I want to commit to the full eldership because that means I need to become like just a slave to the church essentially. Does that mean I need to just be at every single event? Because we do a lot of things, right? Every single thing. And you be at the church every single day, all day, and you need to do this. And you're like, well, one, you're not ready to be an elder yet. That's clear. There's some misunderstanding here. There's a misperception. Uh, we don't want anyone to be appointed to eldership unless that was a desire in their heart to do. And the reason why they can't be there all the time is because there's other responsibilities God's put in their life that they also have to take care of. But the reason why they're not at the church and part of all the events and part of all the, the outreaches and stuff is because they can't be but they wish they could be. And here you are saying, what's the minimal requirements for me to be a father and an example in this community? <coughs> Do you see the disconnect? But listen, this person loves the Lord, has walked with God for 40-something years. It's not that he is, he is a, a, a lame, weak Christian. He just hasn't grasped the paradigm of Scripture and how it differs from how he's been raised in the American Christian church system. It's just a paradigm thing. It's a, having your eyes opened to see and your ears opened to hear this thing and allowing your life to shift in response, to, to be a living sacrifice. So there's one message I preached where I broke it down. I put this big graph on there. I said, hey, guys, there's the mission. And like, but why would anyone ever want to do the mission? It's a lot of work. Why don't I just want to live for myself? Why do I want to do the mission? Because Jesus saved me. Okay, well, I'm really grateful for that. And when we get to heaven, I'm going to be all about Jesus. And you're like, well, no, that's not why you would do the mission. <coughs> you would do the mission because you've been loved. You've been loved in such a way that you've never experienced it before, and it transforms you. It allowed you to believe for the very first time you weren't an orphan. It allowed you to believe for the very first time you weren't on your own. You weren't separate. You weren't subject to your performances. You weren't, you weren't going to be loved because of how good or not good you could be. <coughs> Instead, you, you experienced a love that said, from, from love itself, a goodness that could only come from there, and it's world-changing. And now you're like, I d what do I need to do to be with you? And he's like, just come along with me. 
And you see that's what he did with his disciples. What did he do? He just invited them to come and see. That's it. Come with me and watch and see. And that's what he does to us. He says, come, come with me. But what does that mean to come with him? He's on mission. It means to come with him on mission. And as you're on there, he starts saying, this is what we're doing. Like a son who's growing up to be like his dad. Here we go. This is the mission. And then so it's love that makes you want to be part of the mission. But what does love look like? We talked about the four words, right? Love looks like worship. In the Christian expression of love, it looks like worship in all of its forms. But the main form of worship in the New Testament is not singing songs. Don't get mad at me, especially all you worship leaders. Singing songs is great. Ask David. Read the Psalms. He's like, use every instrument, use your voice, sing songs. That is an expression of worship. But the, the expression of worship throughout the entire scriptures was taking something precious of yours and killing it as an offering to the Lord. It couldn't even be something spotted. It had to be the best of the best of what you had. And that was worship. It was a sacrifice that you brought and you put on an altar and it was painful to give, but you were willing to do it because the worship was of more value than this thing you had. That's the picture of worship. So, wow, okay, worship here. And then you read in the New Testament, Paul says this, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, wholly pleasing to God, for this is your reasonable or expected worship. We read that all the time, thinking so many things, but when you tie it to the whole picture of Scripture, you realize this is what God sees as worship. Your life as an every single day sacrifice from a living, breathing, eternal disciple of Christ. It's you as a living sacrifice. The picture of that, Paul is saying, is you daily taking your life, your desires, your wishes, your dreams, everything you'd like to do, and daily putting it on the altar, knowing this is painful to do, but the worship of who he is and what you receive from him is of more value. And therefore, like Solomon says, this love is as strong as death. It's as unyielding as the grave. Many waters cannot quench this love. Many rivers cannot overflow it. If a man were to give everything he had, if a man were to present himself as a living sacrifice every single day of his life, it would still be counted as trash in comparison to the love that I got. That's the picture of scripture. Okay, well, what does living sacrifice mean? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means ministry. And that's the conclusion. Well, ministry? But I'm not a minister. The word we translate ministry is service. That's it. Your living sacrifice is to present yourself daily to the mission of Christ as he's called us to and say, what is my service today for Christ and his mission? <clears throat> and that is what makes someone a minister. Not a piece of paper, not a license, not a designation, right? Not an education. None of that makes a person a minister. A minister is a person who has done that track, has presented themselves as a living sacrifice to Christ and his mission. And when we do that, then the family of God starts to function the way it's meant to be. And then we begin to see God do things in our community. And we see, you think, guys, you think it's hard to fill up a church? It's not. It is when we use man's tactics and man's ways and modern Christian stuff and we, you know, <coughs> depend on tithes and offerings. 
It's wild. Like a church functioning according, if they had the vision and they're operating according to the mission, a church would have no financial worries. None. 10%? Are you kidding me? Do you know what you would put into a business you were starting if it was your dream and it was your baby, you had a vision for this thing? Do you think you would say, yeah, I'm going to invest 10% of my income into this thing and hopefully it'll get up and running? No. People, successful business people, they put everything they have into it because it's their life. They want to make it work. They want to see it come to pass. And people who have caught the vision of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in their life and in the earth, and the mission that Christ gives us and realize there is nothing more important than the mission. Nothing. Not even yourself. You have been sent as a lamb to the slaughter for the sake of the mission. Your children are meant to be shot out like arrows from you for the sake of the mission. God has sent many people to brutal sacrificial deaths for the sake of the mission. And the fruit of it has been eternal. Eternal. And so those who know Christ will feel within themselves a desire to make them known because they're in synergy with the purposes of Christ and therefore the Holy Spirit is unleashed because you're in alignment with Christ and his purposes. And now when you pray for the sick, they'll be healed. And now when you preach the gospel, it'll be backed up by power because you're representing Christ accurately. And then these seats get filled and then you got to bust out walls and then you got to expand because people are finding the hope they've been looking for in your witness. There's so much. <clears throat> we'll just let the Holy Spirit say what he wants to say here in your hearts now. Just take his time because, listen, Jesus made it clear. They will know that you're mine. They will know that you're my disciples. You're my followers. By the love they see expressed to one another in your midst. And remember the words loves. This is agape again. By the sacrificial, loving, caring, carrying each other's burdens and their needs, uh, emotional, physical, financial, every way. A true family of families gathered together, loving each other as they've been loved by Christ. And then that light can't be stopped. Not even the gates of hell prevail against that. But if you're doing anything less than that, you're spinning your wheels. If you're just thinking church is showing up on a Sunday and, and being friendly and hearing good message and going back to your real life, you're missing it. There is, there is life available for you. There is life waiting for you that you've not known. It's just like there waiting for you to just turn the page and see like life spring up. You get in the word and you say, God, show it to me. And he just does. So my challenge to you guys today, right? would be this. Here's this guy most of you guys have never met. I see a lot of new faces, so I know I'm a new face to you guys. <clears throat> is this, that it doesn't matter who says what they're saying, but you allow whatever truth has resonated in your heart to do its work. That right now you submit to that truth. You surrender to the truth right now. If there's no repentance spawned in your heart, it's for one of two reasons. You're already perfect, right? Or there is a stubbornness or pride that's telling you you don't need whatever truth you just heard from Scripture. You already understand it. You don't. Guys, I got my master's degree from seminary in 2005. It blows my mind that it was that long ago. I feel like I just finished. And I graduated with my master's degree and had no clue what the church was and what its purpose was. Man, I had so much knowledge, so much information. 
But when I started going through different things that exposed the centrality of the church and the idea of the mission of God, and then I saw in Scripture, they're, they're right. This is wild. My life changed. My family changed. My, my marriage changed. Like, everything. I, I had strongholds in my life that I was completely blinded to. The seminary did nothing to help me with. But the minute I started getting confronted with the church and its mission, and the words started to come, like, come together, it started to be synergistic and make sense, suddenly things started to stir and erupt in my heart, and it started to be exposed. And because I was part of a solid family of families, of a church that was living it, God was able to allow the gospel to remove strongholds and free me up to the mission in a much greater way. And my, my life has benefited from it. My family's benefited from it. The church as a whole has benefited from it. Like, so much. This is what's waiting for you if you can grasp the vision. And listen, it's not something that might bear fruit. It is promised by the word of God, by a God who cannot lie, that that will produce fruit. The people in your community will start to realize that this place is an ecclesia of the truth. It will start realizing that there is a hope and a, a restoration and people go in messed up and they come out redeemed in this place. I need to find out what's going on. They start asking. You start being inspired by the, the word in a fresh way because you've opened your heart in a new way. You start finding joy in lining up with the teachings of scripture in a new way. You start digging in and saying, man, Read Romans 12, guys. Read Romans 12 from 10 on. It's literally a list of what it looks like to live as part of the church on mission. You start seeing the fruit of it, and then lives are changed. So right now, what I'd ask you to do <coughs> is this, that you would, so many things, it's practical things, guys, right? Standing up breaks us out of our comfort zone. So it's not about that's the holy position, is by standing up, but it's more so like stand up, move to a different spot, right? Tell your body, you're shifting to a different thing right now, right? And then close your eyes so that you're not distracted by the cute kids or, you know, cool people around you, whatever. And you just say, God, please align me with your mission. Open me up to the mission. Show me where I will be most fruitful in this mission, right? Show me that my life that was forfeit at one point, but has been redeemed by you, can be most valuable as part of this ecclesia and its mission. Do you understand? That's, that's, that's what I think God wants to do here. So let's do it. Let's just stand up and give the Holy Spirit a chance to do what only he can do. Because we can stand up and tell you truth and speak, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't pierce your heart and provoke response, then you just came to another good church service and had a, heard another good message and you're going to go home feeling good until the real life and all the cares of the world start coming back to you and you forget it all. But if you allow the Holy Spirit to right now begin to birth a fresh work in your heart, it resonates. It's going to expand and it's going to impact when the cares of this world hit you. You start to respond to them differently. You start to say, here's my living sacrifice, God. What do you have to say about this? What are you doing in it? And he calls you up, and where he calls you, he equips you to it. Jesus, we're here before you. We've laid our lives before you right now, God. We're opening our hearts to you. And we're asking you to do what only you can do. We are completely dependent on you in this moment. We are completely dependent. We are pleading with you, God, to do what only you can do. Plant this seed deep and allow truth to resonate. 
change us in this moment. God, we trust your word that when two or more are gathered together as name bearers of you, in your name, as family members of the household of heaven, that you are present. You are here. You are among us. You are within us. And as we put our faith in that truth, God, we ask you to do what you do. Produce transformation. Produce change in my heart, God. Open my eyes to see new truth that you're showing me. Open my ears to hear new truth that you're speaking to me. Give me the grace and the courage to make the changes necessary to step into this new life perspective. To change and tweak my life in the areas that need to be done. Eradicate selfish and fearful living from my heart and my mind, God. Lead me into the path of greater freedom every day that I can confidently, successfully present myself to you as a living sacrifice, wholly pleasing to you as my reasonable act of worship to a God who provokes it from me. 